The state of Connecticut has 253 miles of coastline, but in the early 1970s, just seven miles of it were accessible to the public. That stark figure goes some way to explain why the state became the focus for a sometimes bitter political battle for access to a heavily restricted shoreline. The Greenwich Beach, restricted by local ordinance to residents and their guests, was invaded today by three dozen Hartford area ghetto children and a handful of adults who call themselves the Revitalization Corps. Armed with a Supreme Court ruling that all the nation's beaches from the low water to the high water mark belong to everyone, the group staked its claim to a patch of sand. Its leader, Ned Cole, claims that out of 250 miles of shoreline in Connecticut alone, only six miles are open to the public. It's not just the Greenwich Beach you're talking about. You're talking about that whole shoreline where a small percentage of wealthy people control that shoreline and the average factory worker gets on the highway and tries to go to a Connecticut State Park on a Sunday afternoon and it closes very early, like on 4th of July, and he can't even bring his children in to use the shore, and that's wrong. Cole was issued a summons after some local... Spearheading the protest was Ned Cole, a radical young activist whose campaign to free the beaches combined political theater with provocative direct action. The tale is told in Andrew Carl's new book, Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. I asked Andrew how Connecticut's beaches had become so inaccessible in the first place. We began to see in the early 20th century, up and down the shoreline, developers who were creating these private beach associations, which were sort of a kind of a forerunner of the modern gated community. Groups of homeowners banded together and very much sort of, you know, restricted access to their beaches. They restricted membership on the basis of race and religion. You know, they often were governed by a racially restrictive covenants, and they were very explicit restricting access to their beaches to members only. Now, combined with uh, private beach associations, you had local town beaches that were really public in name only because many of these um, communities along the Connecticut coast restricted access to town beaches to residents only. And these communities oftentimes had their own um, discriminatory housing policies. So what would happen, let's say, if I wanted to just use the beach at a private beach? association? Well, as a white man, you might not have that big of a problem. Uh -huh. um, and in fact, one of the things that I found throughout this history was that these laws were often selectively enforced. They were on the books and could be certainly used in situations when an undesirable person or group was seeking to access a beach. They oftentimes could be ignored if, say, a person sort of fit the profile of the desired segment of the public um, that would be welcomed there. The protagonist of your story is Ned Cole. Tell me a little bit about Ned Cole and how he became involved with beaches. Yeah, Ned Cole was um, a young Irish Catholic, um, recent college grad who in 1964 quit his job in an insurance company um, in Hartford, Connecticut, his hometown, and founded what came to be known as Revitalization Corps. He described it as Domestic Peace Corps. He said that he was waging a war on apathy, and he thought that the emergence of these all-white suburbs in places like you know East um, and West Hartford had a real damaging effect on white people. He understood on an instinctual level that the problem of racial inequality in America was a white person's problem. Many of whom saw themselves as open-minded, tolerant, racially liberal, yet in their day-to-day -day lives had very little contact with African-Americans, had a, a variety of structural barriers that sort of ensured that their communities would remain racially exclusionary. 
And so in the summer of 1971, he and the group of African-American mothers who he worked alongside decided to um, lead a bus trip down to the state shoreline to provide children, most of whom had never seen the ocean, who had never sort of, you know, really sort of ventured outside of the city much at all, uh, giving them an opportunity to enjoy what had become sort of a, you know, a rite of childhood for most Americans, you know, a day at the beach. When they got there, they discovered that there was nowhere they could go. And was that a shock to them? Did they just assume there was no planning in advance? They weren't trying necessarily to disrupt things? No, this did not originate as a protest. Ned kind of naively assumed initially that they would be welcome there, that towns would say, you know, welcome a a group of adorable young children um, with open arms who are seeking nothing more than to just um, enjoy a day at the beach. But um, that was certainly not the case. And what, in fact, happened when they arrived? There was a great deal of hostility. Local police were summoned. Then you also saw, after the fact, towns hastily met and tightened their beach access laws even further to make, you know, to ensure that this didn't happen again. Now, Cole goes on to capitalize on that reaction as a method of protest. Could you describe some of these protests? He quickly began to engage in very inventive and um, high-profile forms of protest. One of the sort of most um, inventive protest tactics he used was um, amphibious invasions of these very, you know, elite country clubs and private beaches along the shore, commanding boats and coming ashore and playing on the wet sand portion of the beach, which was their legal right, because legally, the wet sand portion of the um, shoreline was public property. Cole was issued a summons after some local residents accused members of his group of trespassing on private property on their way to the beach. Many of the townspeople were angry and outraged. So what are you going to do? Every time it's low tide, trudge in? Yeah, you we should, should have an access road to get to this beach because up to the high tide land. Really? You've got plenty of for the state poor kids park. that drags with you. This is just trying to get in because it's private. You've got to make your little point. Here, the only people who have paid for the beaches are the citizens of Greenwich. So we feel that the beaches belong to the citizens of Greenwich. Given the ferment of the 1970s, given the movement to get rid of Jim Crow in the South, where does this leave the beaches today in Connecticut? A law student at Rutgers who in, in 1995 was jogging along um, the, the, the shoreline of Greenwich, Connecticut, and was stopped at the um, guardhouse and told he couldn't jog onto the beach. He sued the town of Greenwich and it was actually the first lawsuit filed against Greenwich um, over its resident-only beach um, ordinance. He won in 2001. The Connecticut Supreme Court struck down Greenwich's resident-only um, beach law on the basis of free speech, saying that you cannot sort of have um, public spaces that are um, restricted to one segment of the public. There are um, dozens um, of these um, beach associations in there, um, as restrictive as ever. And and public beaches remain, in a practical sense, very inaccessible. The one example I give, you know, Greenwich, actually, a non-resident can buy a beach pass, but they have to drive to the other side of town and purchase it at a city office building that is only open from nine to five on weekdays. Was there anything particularly wise or stupid about picking beaches as one of the sites in which to carry this out. You know, we associate them with openness and freedom. And, you know, these are sort of quintessentially public spaces open to everyone. And yet in practice, they have been some of the most exclusionary spaces in America and places that have been hotly contested. And I think he identified the sort of contradictions there. 
Andrew Carl is an associate professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Virginia. Earlier in the show, we heard from Christine Schmidt, a research fellow at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. 